Welcome to the Arts for Society podcast, where we talk about how art can bring change to society. This is Anne and Aude. Our opening series explores the theme of resilience and will feature interviews with artists, conversations on artworks and readings of poems. We joined forces with the Institute for Innovation in Prosecution, or IIP, at John Jay College in New York to discuss resilience in the context of criminal justice reform. So how can art help build resilience and bring change to those who are impacted by the criminal justice system? This is what we are discussing in a series of five episodes. This episode is dedicated to poetry. We will broadcast the readings of poems written by formerly or currently incarcerated men and women, telling us about their experience in prison, the challenges they've been through, but also their hopes, their strength, their resilience. Please note that in light of the current COVID crisis, this series was recorded entirely remotely and sound can be spotty at times. Shanake Salman, Creative Associate at the Institute for Innovation in Prosecution, will introduce this episode. So today we'll be hearing from a number of artists and poets as they share their own experiences and experiences of others who have been touched by the system. The theme of this series is human resilience, and given the times we are living in, it seems to be the perfect time to listen, reflect, and pledge to move forward and do better. Now I will turn it over to our director, Lucy Lang. Thank you, Shauna. The Institute for Innovation and Prosecution at John Jay College of Criminal Justice works with prosecutors and communities across the country to build a criminal justice system founded on safety, fairness, and dignity. In my years of teaching in New York State prisons, I have been endlessly inspired by the breadth and depth of artistic talent behind bars. Today, I am thrilled to share some of that with all of you by welcoming several outstanding poets who will each share a poem and a bit of their own stories. Thank you to all of our partner organizations and to the poets who are with us. I'm thrilled to welcome our friend and partner, Vivian Nixon. Hello, everyone. I am Vivian Nixon. Double Dare. Visit me here, but only if you can face rage and regret. Don't ask me how I feel until you drink from this bitter cup. Don't preach God to me until you've been dipped into this death of mine. When you stroll by this prison, blast a boombox to mask the midnight moans. Weary women wail while you walk by seeking worthy souls. If you come too close, we'll pull you in, hoping to touch your heart, I double dare you. Come to Jericho and tear down these walls. Lights out in memory of sleep. 11 at night, my cell is locked tight. You all are sleeping. 
I'm up all night. Sleep I must fight, for if I sleep, grim thoughts seep into my mind deep, nightmares leap, my weary eyes weep when I try sleep, radios beep, guards in a jeep creep and peep and pain they heap. You are still sleeping while I'm reaping the life I've been keeping. Haiku to purpose. Mountain peaks loom tall, splendid, distant, and daunting. Climbing required. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vivian. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about the context of poems? Come from for you, or would you rather jump into questions from the room? Um, uh, just a two sentence about context. They, the um, poems were all written while I was incarcerated, and I wanted to, you know, I, I, I vacillated between trying to find something hopeful, but I wanted to honor the pain that so many of my incarcerated brothers and sisters are experiencing today. Uh, in the environment of this pandemic, uh, but then also a little um, a little levity with the the rhyming poem and a hopeful end with the haiku that there are mountains before us, um, but we we must climb one step at a time. So that's the context. Thank you. Um, I'm pleased to introduce now a friend and student of the IIP, Dario Pena. Okay, this uh, poem is entitled, The Human Spirit. If I had not seen you, would I have dreamed it? That vivacious smile and probing eyes, would you have me hypnotized? No matter how hard I try, can I visualize the essence of your presence, purely evanescent. Yet you are always here, ubiquitously near. Is my heart sincere or like an oasis? My senses are rendered deceptive. I feel like I knew you, but I don't know who you are. Again, I take a look, yet you never turn away. You force me to reflect, implore that I explore the depths of my feeling, for you have already been where it leads. As I travel the path of life's journey, from the first cry out the womb to the last breath on the gurney. It all transpires in a moment's flash. When I came to realize there is no surprise to the very kaleidoscope of human experience. There is a profound resilience. I can see and feel it to the human spirit. Thank you. Dario, can you say a little bit about how your poetry has changed since you have gotten out and how you think about it differently? I guess since I've, uh, since I've been released, um, my experience of the world is just completely different than what I had imagined it would be. Um, there's just so much, everything is just so different that um, 
like I said to someone in a friend of mine, uh, John Adrian Velasquez, who is currently sitting in Sing Sing right now. Um, There's nothing but poetry manifesting in my heart because of all these new experiences emotionally, uh, psychologically, that I've been experiencing since I've been released. So the poetry has taken on a different nature for all those reasons because the feeling is just so raw and and to give expression to it in words just is like a process that I'm learning about myself, you know, through, as I go along. And it's, it's, it's amazing to experience it. And it's a completely different feeling than what I've had when I was in prison. Thank you. And I'm pleased now to invite Pastor Isaac Scott to share his poetry. Who am I? From childhood, I spent my whole life learning all I could. Through this, I discovered God's kingdom is real, found out it was within, and the body, its temple. I also learned we are all in this world, yet somehow beyond it as well. As I grew in the knowledge and the power, I began to become tempted by my ego. Who can be a real devil at times? Absolutely. To use my realization for a selfish earthly gain. After overcoming this struggle, I became a teacher, rabbi, of how others could learn all this too and greater. Since people fell asleep, lost awareness and confusion a lot and rather easily, I first demonstrated tangible magic, like how to turn water into wine, simple chemistry, and how I could heal and teach them to heal their own bodies through belief. Then I would tell them some spiritual open-ended metaphors, but most couldn't follow me and replied they didn't understand. And so I would often secretly just burn off. As I traveled and the word spread, many started giving me fantastic recognition and I had to keep correcting them. It is not I who is good, but God. No one could seem to remember this. Those who attend church religiously really began to hate me because I showed God isn't their monopoly. This truly, truly burned their own egos. And so they knowingly, knowing not what they do, killed me. However, the spirit I gave no grave could contain, ergo, I am even still today. Who am I? By John Barton. They call me SK961. However, when I was born on March 24th, 1981, I was given the name Justin Anderson. And I bet as my mother lay there in that cramped hospital room holding her bundle of joy, she never imagined that 20 years later, he would be called a number. But I, I'm, I'm getting too, too ahead of myself. Let me, let me backtrack a little bit and calm down. The process of dehumanization is slow, like the wheels of justice. As an adolescent, I wore labels such as bad and troublemaker, 
sometimes I felt ashamed, and other times I felt so proud because it gave me the respect I desperately wanted from my peers. But by 18, my elders began using phrases like dead or in jail when discussing me. Some of them looked upon me with pity while others just kept their distance as if I was contagious. I will never forget the day that my best friend told me that he wasn't allowed to hang out with me anymore as though everyone, it was as though everyone knew where I was headed. Everyone knew where I was headed. Everyone knew where I was headed, everyone but me. The language that was used to describe me made me feel like a prisoner, even back then, although I didn't fully understand it. I felt restricted, boxed in, and counted out. The fact that I feel the same way as a prisoner today as I did when I was free as a child is something that I always thought I would just take to my grave because I didn't want to share that with anyone. But if my story can help change how we use the power of language, then I will bear this shame a thousand times over. I firmly believe that the key to unlocking change is by recognizing that the language we use, our words that is, has the power to influence the minds and behaviors of others. If I'm correct then, my hope is that you will ignore all the labels incarcerated men and women have to be forced to bear and by the power invested in these words, let the rehumanization process begin. I said, let the rehumanization process begin. Let the rehumanization process begin. By Justin Anderson. My name is Pastor Isaac Scott, and this morning I went to a vigil for a man named Leonard Carter who was incarcerated for over two decades. He went before the parole board and the parole board deemed him safe enough to return to society. And as Mr. Carter awaited release, he died from the coronavirus. And he was never able to make it home, never able to relive and start a new life. I asked, where is the resilience in this? And I just wanted to just quickly give context um, that I read a poem by one by John Barton and one by Justin Anderson, who are both um, incarcerated. Um, one is incarcerated, um, Life Without Parole in Texas, and the other one is on death row in Arkansas. And um, we definitely want to keep them in our thoughts and prayers during these times. Thank you for that. Um, I'm pleased to introduce another close partner of the IIT and, and friend, Bobby Pollock. I'm going to read two poems by Justin Elias Monson. This is lockdown language in a world that does not yet understand the total logic of the cage. Masks are covers strangely unrecognized in this square mile of American earth where we circle the remnants of our lives in a world we no longer know by touch. And yes, it's touching, it's true, it's real, it's needed to write poems and posts and prose to decode the lows of a lockdown, if anyone knows. 
well. And yet we are not tethered to no etymology, no primary cause, no buzz, nor tag, nor trend, but the siren heard when it is time to be caged. So no, we are not amazed by distance. We are not stirred by silence nor solitude. Huddle and holding patterns are the states we have held for longer than supplies will now last. And that is the language spoken behind the walls of this land and its everyday laws. So now, sing your song and we will listen, just as we always have. This is also by Justin Rovius Monson, American Quarantine Narrative. I do not understand what the sentence means I told my captors a decade ago. My words played on a loop over and over through the door as I sat in my box. I received no answer as the world arrived in a state of sickness. I received no answer as the world clawed at the walls of an adjacent box. Some nights I found comfort in the echoes burrowing through concrete. A box, eight by 10 feet can do more than hold your body. I do not understand what this sentence means. I do not understand. The loop began to alter itself. There were simple distortions. I do not, I do not, stretched ad infinitum. There were cuts in chaos, sentence, sentence, sen, I do not. Low, creeping bass. Sleep no longer an option. I began to dig through the wall between the world and I. I never believed my captors would reward my obedience, a string of acts rigged with explosives in a vision. I became very sick. My captors would be forced to feed me medicine, hook my lungs to a machine. Alas, I remained of decent health, though without, without enough water. A ruthless drip of days, I do not, I do not, I do not. And in my thirst, not the sentence, not, 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 what this means. Madness soon followed, my digging spoon dulled to a useless instrument. My fingers bled. On the 40th day, as the sun began its work, I broke through. I removed my eye pressed it through the opening with my outstretched hand. In the adjacent box, I could see a television attached to a speaker, voices coming forth. What this means, sentence, sentence, what this means, I do not understand. On the television, ghosted streets and overflowing hospitals, the loop, a chorus, I do not understand what this sentence means, I do not understand. I contorted my wrist, eyes searching each corner of the adjacent box. The world was not there. My captors were not there. Those are two from Justin Ovius Monson. If I could burden you one more and read one more from Jeremy Wilson. It's called COVIDed. The gathering storms belched like a clot of cumulus, a full breath of the nettled spheres, nebulous, mercurial, hungry, patient. A flash of casual contact incarnated as a colony of tentacled balloons gathered and a veil of organic gauze, now terminally drifting toward the cilia and lymph, a leap, a sense of the world dropping away, the stench hidden, the sweet taste of victory missing, rising balloon flesh, a soft pop, a slight release of pressure, then a terrifying realization that the winds have simply shifted. Human though, to think this floating bouquet of entropy being ended so simply or so soon. Thank you very much, Robbie. I know you were sharing words from other folks, but can you talk a bit about your own artistic identity, um, both before you were released and now? 
Sure. Um, I guess I, it's weird, the multidisciplinary nature of creators inside prison. I think I run a mentorship program at PEN America and it's always hard to pair a, an incarcerated writer with a writing mentor on the outside. Outside we specialize, inside people write poetry, drama, fiction, songs, do uh, dance and visual art. Um, so I do all of the above, kind of. Um, I, I have acted with Rehabilitation Through the Arts, like some of our other um, panelists. Um, I write a lot of songs. Uh, I've written a couple during this time. My mom is a, um, works at a hospital and she's still going into work. I couldn't write for a while during the pandemic because it felt really, I didn't want to be trite or reactive. And, and I think the, the first thing that came out was a thank you to the people who like are still going out there and putting their lives on the line to help people. Because um, I think that's the model that I want to do with our art. And the, it's the model that I've seen with a lot of people. Once they learn the tools of creative self-expression, it's almost always used to help uplift and share and give. Um, so I guess, I guess that's where the best impetus from my art comes from is, is those, um, those impulses. Hi, Robbie. I was wondering why you chose, what about those specific poems that you chose do you think really resonated with you, with you and your experience? Um, Justin Ravius Monson, uh, the first poet whose work I read, there's a thing in the style that Justin does that um, has like the hip hop influence where he's almost like sampling himself in his work. And I, I really dig the musical element in his work. Um, I think his, uh, his release that one was, a, it's called a mixtape and um, he's collaborated with other people on the outside who can do the editing and, and all that stuff. So I just really think it's got a, an energy that feels very new, fresh, and now. My buddy, um, Jeremy Wilson, who's at Attica, is also a visual artist. Um, and he was kind enough to share uh, a graphic narrative piece that we put on our newsletter, uh, pen.org slash works of justice. And he, like many of our writers, like and people inside understand what a risk it is to express yourself creatively. So literally he's had the superintendent visit his cell for the stuff that he sent us, that we sent copies back to him on JPay and it got him shaken down four times in the cell. So representing the power of, yes, it's great to write and great to be a poet, but being a poet and telling the truth in prison is a different kind of a circumstance. And I think, I chose these because they represented that to me. I love this idea of kind of uh, poetic contraband. And it makes me think about the distinction between, say, Vivian's use of a haiku, a very formal poetic construction, and some of the other poems that we've heard, Dario, um, and some of the ones you shared that are much more free form um, and, and don't adhere to a very specific structure. So Vivian, I was wondering if you could just talk for a minute about your decision in that last piece to use a, a, a more formal construction for your poem. 
it was a challenge to myself. Um, mm. I, I don't usually follow any particular structure. Um, I'm free form for the most part, and I have much longer poems that are very free form. And I was reading a lot about poetry and thinking, oh, well, if, if I want to be a writer, I'm going to have to learn these things. I'm going to have to learn these formal structures. Um, and so I, I was just trying my hand at writing in different standard um, forms, sonnets and haiku. And it didn't work for me until um, I got to haiku. Because brevity of words is something that I cherish, and uh, getting right to the point, being really concise. Uh, so I enjoyed it so much that it didn't feel unnatural to me anymore. So I just added it to my my toolbox. Love that. Well, I'm pleased to introduce another poet who is with us this afternoon, Shawana Vaughn. Lying thinking last night how to find my soul a home where the water is not thirsty and the bread loaf is not stone. I came up with one thing and I don't believe I'm wrong that nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. There are millionaires with money that they cannot use. Now, if you listen closely, I'll tell you what I know is that no race of man is suffering and I can hear them moan because nobody can make it out here alone by Sergio. Um, I thought that was amazing for right now because we are social distancing and I am not a big fan of where I think we're going when social distancing is over. Um, so the next piece I have um, was something I was thinking about while I was at work today. So um, swing low, sweet chariot coming forth to carry me home. As we labored as slaves on the plantations of Jamestown, Virginia, labored, sweat, and died. As I reflect on Sally Hemings and Sojourner Truth, as we soldiered through, the journey to the new plantation, I could imagine my mother humming, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder where we are. I could imagine my mother telling me that the sun will come out tomorrow and all these great things as she labored as a captive shackled and chained, delivering a baby, April 15th, 1978, on the new plantation called Corona State Prison for Women. I could hear her in my mind weeping as, as she gave birth through chains and shackles. I could hear her screaming and no one to hold her hand. I could hear her moaning, better days are coming. For all the women who are giving birth in prison and for all the children being born on the new plantation, I salute the First Step Act for being the first step to no more children being born like me with a mother on a plantation in shackles and chains. Thank you. Thank you. I noticed that you talked about birth and, and one of the poems Isaac shared also uh, talked about birth. 
is why do you think that that is particularly relevant in this historical moment? Because right now, you know, um, I believe that for me, the First Step Act was really important um, to get involved in because I was born in prison. Um, my mother was one of the, you know, was in Corona State Prison and I looked at my birth certificate and I said, wow, it, you know, you, you're marked at where you're born. And when I hear about shackled in chains and I hear women um, that my mother was friends with, that their kids didn't make it because they were in circumstances that was tumultuous to give birth in. And I hear about, you know, the fatalities of my mother's friends telling me the women that they that didn't make it um, because prison wasn't conducive for um, mothers. And I know that, um, you know, even right now as I'm watching people die in COVID-19 and I think about all the things that need to happen in mass incarceration, I'm grateful for the First Step Act where we actually acknowledge women um, and shackling and prison. And I know that so much more needs to be done. Um, and women are usually the last to be uh, thought about when bills and legislation and policies are being presented. And so it was important just to acknowledge um, women and, and celebrate my mother, even though circumstances, she did the impossible and made it possible for me to be here with you. Thank you. And I'd be very pleased to introduce everyone to Helene Flower. I'm not going to write poems about people judging people. I'm going to write poems and speak about people loving people. The problem is much bigger than just class and race. It's not a political war, but a spiritual battle between love and hate. If it's going to take a village, then our villages are going to need love. So when they see us, they don't see us as killers and thugs. So when they see us, they see us and don't judge. So when they see us, they see us with eyes full of love. It's not about conservatives and liberals reaching across the aisle. It's about reaching into our hearts to extend a loving smile. These labels are fables that separate us from our truths. We all need to weed the weed to see the love in our roots. Love is the revolution and compassion be our bullets. Empathy be the trigger for forgiveness to pull it. Freedom is our target and unconditional love be our goal. With civic engagement starting at the seat of our soul. Grace plays the symphony as just mercy leads the band for the lady of liberty to love and accept all in this land. Thank you so much, Aleem. Can you tell us a little bit about when you first saw yourself as a poet? Um, 
I was 18, seven, no, I was 19. I used to like freestyle rap and write rap songs. And when I was 19, um, a documentary that I was featured in titled Thug Life in DC that aired on HBO and, and a young lady had wrote me a letter because I was incarcerated like three years into my life sentence. And um, she wrote me a letter. She was very articulate, very uh, attractive. And she told me that she did slam poetry. And, you know, I was very lonely. I was in maximum security. And I lied to get her to come see me. And I wrote her a poem and told her that I wrote poetry. So at that moment right there, it wasn't like when I began to see myself as a poet, but it was like the beginning of me um, transitioning more from like hip hop rap into poetry. So um, I don't know like when I really like saw myself as a poet. You know, I just, I just love words and creativity. Robbie, I see you nodding along. Were you going to add something there? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Um, people who uh, work in programs that reach outside in, they want to like remove the fullness of humanity from those interactions and make them as clinical as possible. And, you know, interpersonal attraction and, you know, the core motivations of connection and humanity are are always there like they're there you can't avoid them um and i i loved uh halim just straight up call it what it was um it's it's challenging in institutional contexts um and i and i i just respect that honesty that's that's the honesty of a, a real artist that's all for me it's just like um the book that I read that changed my life was written by a prison author named George Jackson, the book titled Solidaire Brothers. And in one of the letters that he wrote, he said, you know, the greatest impetus that any man would ever have in his life will come from a woman that who he admires the most. And he wrote that about Angela Davis and him. So for me, um, I'm just honored that, you know, uh, I was able to encounter a, a woman, you know, who inspired me to, uh, to tap into something that she said that she saw in my eyes from watching the documentary that at that time I could not even see inside of myself. Thank you. Our final poet today is a multi-talented musician. I'm pleased to introduce you to Ivan Tower. The poem is entitled Today and it was written by a friend of mine named Cedric Blackwell. So today I felt like crying. I didn't want to weep or sob. I just wanted to give in to the lump in my throat, lean into the tightness in my chest, take a breath and just cry. For some reason, I needed to feel the sting of hot tears streaming down my cheeks, down to that curve in my upper lip that shuttles the salty goodness of my frustrations onto my tongue, where it oddly quenches something in my spirit. Today, I felt like crying. I think it had something to do with coming to grips with the fact that I'm being chased, stalked, hunted by an invisible enemy. An enemy that doesn't care that I have a young daughter who just found me after being shuttled around in the foster care system for 18 years. An invisible monster that doesn't care about my two beautiful grandchildren who have not gotten a chance to meet grandpa. 
today, I felt like crying. I think it had something to do with becoming paralyzing aware, paralyzingly aware that I'm a sitting duck, a lamb waiting to be slaughtered as I sit in my penetrable open air tomb listening for a beast that doesn't make a sound, on the lookout for a spook that does, who doesn't show himself, that bears its teeth and strikes under the cover of touch. Today, I felt like crying. And today somebody told me that someone that I know, someone I call a friend, tested positive. And today the news said it wasn't a matter of if, but a matter of when it would be me. Today, I realized that I was afraid, that I am afraid I won't get the chance to say goodbye. Today, I felt like crying. I didn't want to weep or sob. I just wanted to give in to the lump in my throat, lean into the tightness in my chest, take a breath and just cry. So I did. And I wasn't afraid anymore. So that, that poem was written by a good friend of mine, Cedric Blackwell. He's currently incarcerated at uh, Katsaki Correctional and he was just calling me on the phone just now. He was just calling me as I was reading it. He called me twice and I felt bad that I had to hang up. But um, so he had written, he had, he had emailed me uh, at the beginning of this month and he had asked me, you know, he was worried, he was concerned, you know, you know guys were getting sick and he wasn't sure what he, what he could do. You know, he's in school, he's got 17 years in on a 20 to life sentence. And he says, Ivan, I don't want to die in here. You know, I consider myself a pretty tough guy. I've survived being shot, being stabbed, uh, you know, being beaten half to death. And I don't want to succumb to a, a damn bug. You know, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to make it to the finish line and then die from a bug. Uh, and I think Robbie sort of, uh, touched on something, uh, you know, the danger that a lot of these guys and, and the gals and the women put themselves in when they when they write poetry and when they write to the outside world, right? And it put put me in the mind. So it just reminded me of something that James Baldwin said. Uh, James Baldwin said, uh, uh, "To act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger, right?" And the danger, just the simple act of writing something like this, puts these men and these women in, you know, writing to the outside world and telling them. What the hell's going on inside? Thank you so much for that, Ivan. We have a question from Ode. You know, the overarching theme of the series is resilience. And so I was curious how words in general, and poetry in particular, felt like they could help build resilience behind bars and, and also in the times of COVID. Isaac, do you have an answer for that? Yeah, I think that. Um... Words, words are everything. And um, Mr. Jo uh, Mr. Anderson sort of helped us to understand the impact that words have. So the power of, um, you know, um, speaking things and hearing them and the, the, the um, um, you know, and even in a, a religious context, faith cometh by hearing. So it's something about, you know, the, the speaking and the, and the words and the empowering that can make one um, sort of crushed or and or lift one up, you know, when, when, when people are spoken to um, in one way, we, we, we sort of go in one direction, but when we are uplifted and spoken to a different way, um, we, we are led this way. And I like what, um, what Halim said in that he's writing a poetry, 
not about people judging one another, but about people loving one another. So when we change the language in those ways towards more positive things, we sort of um, direct people to take their minds and their thoughts and their thinking and their cares in, in the direction we want them to go. Um, yeah, Dario. Even when it's understood in a different way, words have a way of, of triggering understanding in people when they hear them. Like for instance, um, there's been, there've been many times when I sat in a cell and contemplated certain things about my life or about my experiences or about something that I didn't understand. And I will be sitting there reading a magazine that had nothing to do with the uh, contemplation. And just like that, a, a, a word or a phrase may trigger an understanding and it would just alter my entire experience of that which I was contemplating. So that is what I think that the poetry that people are, that people express in general, uh, that's the effect that it tends to have on all of us is triggering understandings and, 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 and actually bringing about shared experiences uh, uh, in different ways that can manifest just through the reading of a phrase or, or, or certain words. Thank you, Dario. Rinaldi, did you have a question? I have a quick question for uh, Vivian. I apologize, it's super specific. There was a part in your first poem about a boombox and drawing people in. Um, I missed it because of my connection. I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on the drawing people in and maybe how you envisioned it, because I thought, at least how I heard it, uh, I thought it was extremely powerful and it was, it was drawing people uh, maybe outside in, or just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, it, it was written, um, obviously, during the time when boomboxes were a thing. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I think what I was saying is if you turn down the noise that's all around you in the outside world, you'll hear the, the wailing and the weeping behind the razor wire, and it will draw you in. It will draw you inside to our world. Um, and, and you'll want to help us tear down the walls. A student of mine once told me that he didn't know how much he needed poetry until he found himself in prison. In some ways, I think that none of us knew how much we needed poetry and other art, not just for ourselves, but for connection with one another, before we found ourselves in this time of crisis and isolation. Thank you all for being with us. It is such a pleasure to see the faces and hear the voices of so many friends. You all remind me that there is still great work happening in the world in this dark moment. Be safe and well. Thank you for joining us and listening to this episode of the Arts for Society podcast in partnership with the Institute for Innovation in Prosecution, or IIP, at John Jay College. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and we look forward to sharing with you the next episodes of this series about resilience. Please visit www.artsforsociety.com as well as the IIP's website at www.prosecution.org for more information about the series and all the partners involved. 
finally, we want to thank Raf Parpex for creating the beautiful theme of our podcast. <laughs>